Yes, Radio Parallax is continuing to run with our story of the devil. Before we attempt to connect the dots between uh, ancient times and bring us up to the Middle Ages and more recent centuries and how the devil got refined, I'd like like to cite a work that goes back a little over a century, in this case, to 1904, and quote from The Sea Wolf by Jack London. And while he suggests that I try and do this in the voice of Winston Churchill to add gravitas, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Well, I'll see if I can add a Churchillian veneer to Jack London. This is from Chapter 26, where the captain of the Sea Wolf, Wolf Larsen, is waxing philosophic about Satan. Said Wolf Larsen, He led a lost cause and was not afraid of God's thunderbolts. Hurled into hell, he was unbeaten. A third of God's angels he led with him, and straightway he incited man to rebel against God, and gained for himself, and hell, the major portion of all the generations of man. Why was he beaten out of heaven? Because he was less brave than God? Less proud? Less aspiring? No. A thousand times no. God was more powerful. As he said, whom thunder hath made greater. But Lucifer was a free spirit. To serve was to suffocate. He preferred suffering and freedom to all the happiness of a comfortable servility. He did not care to serve God. He cared to serve nothing. He was no figurehead. He stood up on his own legs. He was an individual. Well, that's certainly one perspective. I think we should again quote from Mark Twain, who said, (laughs) regarding today's subject, Who prays for Satan? Who in 18 centuries has had the common humanity to pray for the one sinner that needed it most? Our one fellow and brother who most needed a friend yet had not a single one. The one sinner among us all who had the highest and clearest right to every Christian's daily and nightly prayers. For the plain and unassailable reason that his was the first and greatest need, he being among sinners, the supremest. Well, that's Mark Twain's idea, and we're just helping him put it out there. We would note by way of review that a religious dualism originating with the Zoroastrians and filtered through Judaism reached its logical conclusion in Christianity. If God had innumerable agents as messengers and a visible church of believers, it was reasoned that Satan must have demons as helpers and an invisible assembly of Satan worshipers. And so it was that the church imagined the existence of an entire network of people who had sold their soul to Satan, worshipped him, and dedicated their life to harming and killing other people. ReligiousTolerance.org notes that with the exception of a few mentally ill individuals, no such network existed. We would note that by the 14th century, Nicholas Eimerich, a Dominican, wrote a tract called Directorium Inquisitorium, or The Handbook of the Inquisitors, He described three forms of devil worship. There's Latria, praising Satan. There's Dulia, combining the names of demons with those of the blessed. And curious practices, including the use of magic circle and other necromancies such as love potions, magical filters, and talismans. Near the end of the 15th century, two other Dominicans, by the name of Henry Kramer and Jacques Springer, wrote a book, Malleus Malefactorum, or The Witch's Hammer. It became the legal reference book on witch burning. We don't have to tell you that along the way, a lot of so-called witches got burned, including future saint Joan d'Arc. 
oh, yeah, it was thought along the way that uh, religious visions could be inspired by the devil. So how do we come to this modern idea of the, uh, the red devil with his pitchfork? That's apparently a pretty modern uh, innovation. Apparently a lot of this stuff sort of gelled in the last couple centuries. Our modern image of the devil is a blend between that of satyrs, creatures from ancient mythology with cloven hooves, horns, tail, shaggy legs, and a pointed beard. The pitchfork was apparently also borrowed from ancient mythology, that of Pluto slash Hades, the Greek god of the underworld. It's actually a trident, not a pitchfork. Uh, The brothers of Pluto, that would be Poseidon and Zeus, also had forked weapons. But being that Pluto was the ancient god of the underworld, and Satan was reputedly the new god of the underworld, well, it was sort of stood to reason that he got the same tool. As for color, it's worthy to note the devil is not invariably red back in medieval imagery. In Chaucer, he was green. The most common color is black. Now, the bat wing parts definitely do not do, go back to um, classical times. These were an innovation of the Middle Ages. Bats are thought of as spooky creatures with these uh, scary-looking uh, leathery wings. So this was kind of a natural for the devil. Now, it's noted that by about the 19th century, a lot of theologians began to question the existence of Satan. A lot of the less literal-minded out there among theologians and the populace at large tend to think of the opposite of God as, well, a lot of different concepts. At any rate, there are many ways to portray uh, the devil in art. We're certainly not art historians enough to go through a lot of that. But between the scriptures and popular literature, this, this image did evolve. And when it comes to devil imagery, I do have to tell one slightly eerie tale which dates back to the time when I was an undergraduate student here at this fine university. A gal who wanted to do some camping and I took our backpacks and tents and went up into Yosemite. We hiked into a large lake near the western end of the park called Lake Eleanor. We hiked up into the woods, set up camp, and were enjoying life out in nature. There's a small island out in the middle of the lake. It was obvious as we went off to sleep that some people were out there. They appeared to have a large bass drum of some sort and were wildly pounding away on it up till the middle of the night. The next day, we swam out to the island to see who these folks might be, raising all the ruckus. When we arrived at the island, we found five or six people naked with their drum placed alongside the campfire, adjacent to which was a large cardboard cutout of the Mephisto cigar devil. Now, this is not the scariest of devils. He did have bat wings, but he looked more like a pudgy guy in a union suit. It did, however, strike us as a rather unusual adornment to have to your (laughs) naked Yosemite drum party. As I recall this memory from many decades ago, I'm struck by the fact that we didn't wind up asking, "So, so what's the deal with the devil? We sort of bid our farewell, swam back across the island, and when they were pounding on the drum the next night, we kept saying, well, think the devil worshipers are going to come after us? And for today's show, we do need to talk a little bit about devil worship. But before we do that, let's talk about the devil's advocate. We are sorry to report that although we intended to appoint someone to represent the devil's interest on today's program, as it stands right now, all of our attorneys have declined this honor. Let's just take a step back into talking about the devil's advocate. Our source in this is Wikipedia, which notes that in common parlance, the devil's advocate is someone who, 
given a certain argument, takes a position they do not necessarily agree with, or simply an alternative position from an accepted norm for the sake of debate or to explore the thought further. Turns out the background to this word comes from an official position within the Catholic Church, in which a canon lawyer called the devil's advocate, also known as the promoter of faith, Quote, argued against the canonization, that's sainthood, of a candidate in order to uncover any character flaws or misrepresentation evidence favoring canonization. The official title, by the way, is actually the promoter of the faith. The office was established in 1587 during the reign of Pope Sixtus V. Pope John Paul II reduced the power of this office and changed the role in 1983. It is now performed by what's called the promoter of justice, who is in charge of examining the accuracy of the inquiry on the saintliness of the candidate. It should be noted that this process changed the canonization procedure considerably and helped John Paul II to usher in an unprecedented number of elevations. Nearly 500 individuals were canonized and over 1,300 were beatified during his tenure as Pope, as compared to only 98 canonizations in all his 20th century predecessors. And uh, as he does in so many other things, author Dan Brown got this one wrong in his 2000 novel Angels and Demons. He featured a depiction of a fictional devil's advocate, which contributed negative information about each candidate for Pope. In reality, the devil's advocate never had any role in the selection of Popes. And of course, Dan Brown reminds us of that strange world where um, supposedly reality meets religion. I'm thinking of The Exorcist. But of course, there was a whole cycle of demonic child films produced in the late 60s and the mid-70s, including Rosemary's Baby and also The Omen. 1973's The Exorcist uh, was one of the highest grossing films of all time, and also the first horror film to be nominated for Best Picture. Thankfully, it did not win. What I find curious is that the year before, 1972, the Catholic Church abandoned the office of exorcist. You should note that any priest can now approach his bishop for permission to cast out demons. Officially, the church now regards demonic possession as being primarily caused by a force, quote, lurking within all individuals, unquote, not a living entity attacking from the outside. ReligiousTolerance.org notes that with the rise in the public's faith in the mental health professions, exorcisms have become less common. And of course, we may want to turn the clock back to the Gospels of the New Testament and note that Jesus and his disciples did accept the common belief in the first century of the Christian era that mental illness and some physical ailments were caused by indwelling demons. Unclean spirits are mentioned seven times in Mark, once in Matthew, and three times in Luke. It was demons who were believed to possess individuals and cause them to mutilate themselves, to collapse, to foam at the mouth, and to thrash around on the ground. Today, we generally consider these activities to be related to epileptic seizures. And by the way, as regard those episodes of Jesus being tempted by Satan, I think we again have to go to the wisdom of Mark Twain, who noted in regard to this episode that Satan must have been pretty simple even according to the New Testament, or he wouldn't have led Christ up to a high mountain and offered him the world if he would fall down and worship him. That was a manifestly absurd proposition because Christ, as the Son of God, already owned the world. And besides, what Satan showed him was only a few rocky acres of Palestine. 
was just as if someone would try and buy Rockefeller, the owner of all Standard Oil Company, with a gallon of kerosene. And I do have to confess that I've still never seen Rosemary's Baby. This, this radio program is going to inspire me to do this. Unfortunately, however, I, I have seen The Omen. And I can't resist going to the 50 worst films of all time and how they got that way by Harry Medved and Randy Dreyfus to quote from their section on The Omen, which did make the list. From the critics' rave section, they quoted Jack Kroll of Newsweek saying, A dumb and largely dull movie, the latest serving of deviled ham. And they quote David Seltzer, described as author of the original screenplay for The Omen, as saying, I did it strictly for the money. I was flat broke. I do find it horrifying to find out how many people actually believe all this silliness. Of course, that was back in the 70s. Since then, we've seen, uh, <laughs> we've seen the success of the Left Behind series, supposedly based on the wacko Book of Revelations. In their version, Jesus Christ comes back to Earth as kind of a uh, celestial George Patton to direct the forces of God against the Antichrist. But it should be noted, going back to the Catholic Church, that belief in the existence of Satan as a living entity does remain active. Let's take that 1980s in excess hit, Devil Inside, and use that to take a look at thoughts about Satanism going back to the 80s. Things got a little bit wacko. There were two socially destructive movements related to the belief in Satanism back then. There was, number one, allegations of satanic ritual abuse. This took us on a turn back to the Middle Ages. It was alleged by some that um, Satanists were secretly organized on a local, county, state, province, national, and international level. They were kidnapping or otherwise obtaining tens of thousands of infants and children for human sacrifice each year in North America. The initial trigger... The initial trigger for this civil panic was the publishing of a book, Michelle Remembers, which alleged to be a documentary account of a young girl's abuse at the hands of Satanists. The book was since investigated by three different groups and found to be a fraud. Unfortunately, other books followed, and a whole um, satanic ritual abuse industry grew up back in the 80s. It's been noted by some that a complete absence of hard evidence of any criminal activity has led to some credibility problems with this movement. Sadly, the main driving force behind this SRA panic was the belief in the accuracy of recovered memories, which we talked about in this program before. All we can say is if you mix up the court system with psychiatry, you have a real floor plan for a lot of devilry. The other socially destructive movement related to Satanism dating back to the 80s were allegations of ritual abuse in daycare centers, a topic we've also covered on this program. There was this belief somehow that children in some daycare centers were being sexually abused, some within a ritualistic setting. The most famous of these cases was the Manhattan Beach, California McMartin Preschool. And the driving force behind these sad cases appears to be the accidental implantation of false memories by police officers, social workers, and child psychologists. Again, mix up the courts with psychiatry, add in a few folks looking for Satan worshipers, and whoo, we got problems. Unfortunately, at that time, hundreds of innocent adults were found guilty of crimes that almost certainly never happened and were given, in some cases, long jail sentences. Many of these cases have been reviewed and overturned. 
And it should be noted for this program that uh, religious Satanists do exist, but they generally do not recognize the existence of nor worship the Christian devil. Most recognize Satan as a pre-Christian pagan force. And it should be noted that there's no credible evidence that adult religious Satanists engage in significant criminal activity. Yes, some teenage and youth dabblers into Satanism do engage in graffiti and minor vandalisms, but they have little or no connection with religious Satanists. And we'll talk about some examples in a minute, but we should note that Wiccans and other neo-pagans are often confused with devil worshipers. These total about 250,000 in the U.S. and follow a nature-based religion, not unlike Native American spirituality. And while neo-pagans worship a god and goddess, they do not recognize the existence of an all-evil deity like the Christian devil. Of course, it should be noted that when you're dealing with religious fundamentalists and other evangelical Christian denominations, uh, well, gods and goddesses of any non-Christian religion are regarded by them as demonic entities. And when it comes to evaluating how many Satanists there may be in the world, if you're a uh, conservative Christian, Regarding any non-Judeo-Christian religion from Buddhism to Hinduism to Zoroastrianism as Satan-related, well, there's about three billion Satanists in the world. If you adopt a more conventional definition by which you're looking for a specific religion which worships the Christian devil, Satan, there are probably a few tens of thousands of Satanists in the world. We do want to talk about a couple of notable Satanists for today's program. Aleister Crowley may not exactly be a Satanist. He would be better described as an English occultist, ceremonial magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. In addition to being a notorious recreational drug experimenter, bisexual, and an individualist social critic. There's so much we could say about the goofball figure of Aleister Crowley alone that we could probably devote a segment to it, but we don't have time for that. Let's just note that he had a wide influence on British popular culture. He's actually one of the figures on the cover art of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. A guy who's a little bit simpler to talk about and almost as entertaining was the local figure of Anton Zandor LeVay. LeVay was definitely playing to the crowd when he founded the Church of Satan, in San Francisco, I remember so well his appearances on uh, things like the Joe Pine Show back in the 60s, and you can actually check out uh, one of these interviews on YouTube. Joe Pine was kind of a 1960s Bill O'Reilly, and when he had on Anton LaVey, who, you know, would dress up with the devil's goatee, wearing a purple cape, shaved head, Well, I thought it was pretty clear then, and I think it's even much, much more clear today when you look at some of these old YouTubes, that LaVey was putting people on. And he certainly was successful at getting quite a bit of ink. Back in the 60s, the LA Times and San Francisco Chronicle both printed articles calling him the Black Pope. Anton LaVey performed satanic baptisms, including supposedly the first one in history on his three-year-old daughter, Zena, dedicating her to the devil, which did garner some worldwide publicity which is a long way to go for a guy that attended Tamil Pius High School in Mill Valley. I did like the description of uh, LaVey from Wikipedia, which noted that in the late 60s and early 70s, he melded the ideological influences of Friedrich Nietzsche, Ayn Rand, H.L. Mencken, and Jack London with the ideology and ritual practices of his Church of Satan. Gotta say, though, you watch him on Joe Pine, he does come off as a bit of a dimwit. 
Anyway, if Anton Zandor LeVay was mixing up a bit of theater with his supposed Church of Satan, we have to note that, wow, Satan has been quite an influence in world literature in the West. Back in 1587, the story of a real magician and alchemist known as Dr. Johann George Faust appeared in print. It alleged that Dr. Faust had done what uh, people did in many tales of folklore, which was sell his soul to the devil for an advantage. This would inspire two legendary works, Christopher Marlowe's The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus and Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's Faust. And this inspired so many tales, including the aforementioned uh, Damn Yankees on Broadway, and a couple of movies we're quite fond of, the 1967 version of Bedazzled and the 2000 version of the same. Personally, I give them both five stars and recommend them to you very highly, dear listener. And if we had a little more time, we'd play clips from both of those wonderful films, but alas, we do not. Although we do like the fact they did mention the seven deadly sins, and no show about the devil I think will be complete without at least enumerating those. For these, we have to thank the 6th century A.D. St. Gregory the Great. In his work, Moralia in Job, he introduced the seven deadly sins. The goal was to illustrate for laypersons the need to be mindful of capital sin or sin, which requires penance in hell. Capital sin, of course, is graver than venial sin, which can be forgiven through confession. Of course, I have to say, that wasn't the way I was taught it back in catechism. Any, at any rate, listed in the order of increasing severity, as per, I guess he became Pope Gregory the Great. The seven deadly sins are lust, as played by Raquel Welch in the original Bedazzled. Gluttony, or overindulgence followed by avarice, or greed. Working our way up in seriousness, we have sloth, and in that we mean the behavior, not the animal. Followed by wrath, envy, which is getting up there, and the worst deadly sin of all, hubris, or pride, subtitled as vanity or narcissism. In other words, a desire to be more important or attractive to others, failing to give credit to others, or excessive love of self. Anyway, we kind of like the idea that the church fathers around A.D. 1000 began to look at these capital sins, not as seven equal sins, but each having its own weight based upon grievousness. By the way, we could probably do five or ten minutes talking about the Muslim version of the devil and demons, or jinn, corrupted in the West, I think, to genies. But alas, we have no good references, and I am an insufficient scholar of Islam to really flesh that one out. And Mr. Millen does volunteer that the many episodes of I Dream of Genie that he watched on television is probably not adequate for him to help either. At any rate, we sadly have to bring our discussion of Beelzebub to a close. We hope this discussion uh, brought up a lot of food for thought. It certainly uh, requires us to take a look back at the holy books of Christianity. And we might want to quote the 18th century Anglo-American philosopher Thomas Paine, who wrote in the Age of Reason that whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half the Bible was filled, it would be more consistent that we call it the word of a demon than the word of God. But I think we must close this up and reserve at least a little bit of time in our third segment for the normal way we conduct this program. I suppose if we wanted to, in looking at current events, we could probably find a satanic shade to just about every news item we want to discuss. 
We will, however, resist the temptation and use for bumper music for this segment one of our favorites, the Squirrel Nut Zippers rendition of Hell. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. we got about eight or nine more minutes, and you will not have to sell your soul to the devil to listen to them. Just stick around. In the afterlife, you could be headed for the serious drive. Now you make the scene all day, but tomorrow there'll be hell to pay. In the afterlife. 